Okay, just a reminder that DBM needs some proofreaders. If you're interested, email uh, into Dean Bible Ministries. You can go to the About Us tab and uh, <clears throat> complete a contact form there. We also need some prep school teachers. And don't forget the trips going to Egypt and Israel. Those are in great shape or getting there. So we still need folks to sign up for the Egypt trip. That'd be great. And uh, everything looks pretty good. The weather ought to be uh, just about perfect. In other words, not hot. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everybody the opportunity to make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord, ready to focus on the study of God's word this evening, and then I will uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who created the heavens and the earth, the seas, and all that is in them. When we take the time to reflect and meditate upon what that means, how profound that statement is about your creation of everything from the minutest microcosm, subatomic, submolecular particles, and how everything works together, all the way up to the macro systems that we see in the universe, the galaxies, and uh, various uh, <clears throat> solar systems, Father, it is amazing that we even doubt your power, your ability to provide for us, to supply our every need, and to sustain us in times of difficulty. Uh, it amazes us that we ever doubt your word, for you have guaranteed its accuracy through the superintendence of God the Holy Spirit over the writers of Scripture, so that we have the most profound of all revelations and insights into reality. And Father, we know that it is on the basis of your word that we, only on the basis of your word, that we can have true stability in life, true happiness and joy, and that <clears throat> as we study in the beginning here of Second Peter, we see such a tremendous emphasis on what you have provided for us. Father, help us to understand that and to uh, take not only take it to heart, but to begin to live more, more significantly on the basis of it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're continuing a study on a, the teaching in Scripture on the sufficiency 
of Scripture. It is a doctrine, a teaching that we find in the Scriptures that is often affirmed by word of mouth, but rejected in terms of practical living and application by every one of us at some point or another. But what is sad is that when we look at what is being taught in many of the Bible colleges and seminaries and in the vast number of pulpits in this country, it is rejected, even by people who affirm that they believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. They reject the sufficiency of Scripture at a practical level through for many different reasons. And it has brought <clears throat> a great tragedy into the church, in the evangelical church, especially in America, because it has led to an extremely superficial view of God and a superficial view of Scripture and a superficial view of the, of the spiritual life. And it is rare to find people who take it as seriously as we should, and I include myself in that. Uh, I know <clears throat> this has been a, a cancer that has eaten at the very soul of Christians in this country. And I remember, I mentioned the book last week, I remember when I first read Dave Hunt's book, The Seduction of Christianity, as he exposed the, you know, the, just the uh, tentacles of humanism that had entered into Christianity, evangelicalism, through a lot of the prosperity theology, the positive confession movement, as well as through Christian psychology that by that time it had come to be accepted as uh, something, something normative. And in fact, uh, Dave Hunt has written quite a bit about that. And he talks about this passage in 2 Peter 1, 3, and he says, how it strengthens our faith and rejoices our hearts to read the testimony of the Holy Spirit-inspired writers of Scripture who found the Bible sufficient for their every need. And how sad it is to find today Christian leaders who teach that the Bible is deficient for modern man and needs to be supplemented by humanistic myths. And he says that we need to just go back to the principles in our passage in Second Peter 1, uh, 3, and 4. He goes on in this particular article that he wrote on the sufficiency of Scripture to talk about and give some examples. And he talks about an article that appeared in Moody Monthly magazine. Moody Monthly, if you're not aware of that, is the monthly publication produced by, by Moody Bible Institute, which was founded by Dwight L. Moody back in the late 19th century, and it's still a fairly solid Bible college up in, in the Chicago area. But he said that there's an article that they published, and see a problem that you had with not just Moody Monthly, but last week I talked about Christianity Today. These were the, the, the dominant magazines that informed evangelicals uh, in the latter half of the, of the uh, 20th century. And he writes that Moody Monthly in March of 1989 declared that, quote, it is imperative, uh, close quote, for those coming out of cults, and you could add any number of things. You could add any list of problems that you face in life and that I faced in life. You can look at this in terms of marriage problems. You can substitute 
uh, problems related to parenting, problems related to uh, parents, uh, all kinds of things. And he says uh, that in this particular instance, they said, quote, that it was necessary for those coming out of cults to, quote, get professional, that is, psychological counseling. Otherwise, it could turn... It could be harmful to survivors to expect them to rely totally on prayer and Bible study. And then he comments that Dwight Moody would be turning in his grave because he taught that we should, quote, rely totally on prayer and Bible study, as have most Bible teachers in the history of Christianity. And then he makes a particularly (coughs) personal statement uh, in relation to you know my background, he says um, he talks about how Moody Radio at the same time is was hosting a program by quote Christian psychiatrist close quote Paul uh, Minerth and Meyer, and they were they were leading the teaching in pat of course we had to take it in seminary called pastoral psychology both of them were psychiatrists and they had in fact they had cl- christian clinics in little rock that came from that area uh, they had one in houston they had branches in a number of places you could listen to their daily program i don't know if they're still around in the 80s and 90s and i remember taking that course and when i got out of that course i decided that that based on what they taught, almost every emotional problem that Christians had was just biochemical. <laughs> you know, it just had to do with with the fact that you got out of sorts and your and you know your endorphins or epinephrine or whatever was just out of balance, and you just needed to get a few shots and you could solve all your problems. And that was the problem with taking people who have a superficial education in the Bible. There are a lot of people who got good education, good biblical education, going through uh, organizations like the Navigators and other organizations, but that was basically their background. And they, in their books, you can read them, and they're just covered with Scripture. But it's it's the the tragedy of the 19th century is people thought things were scriptural. I mean, in the 20th century, people thought things were scriptural if they had a lot of Bible references. Nobody looked them up to see if that passage actually had anything to do with what they were saying. You know, it's just a formality to somehow cloak things in Bible language and Bible verses, and people are going to think you're biblical. But biblical doesn't mean that it somehow is might be consistent with something that's taught in the Bible. It means it comes from the Bible. It has its source in the Bible. It's not merely consistent with the Bible because when you once you go there, you just open the door to all all manner of of areas uh, of, of problems. And when you get into this whole area, and in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, this was such a such a controversial issue. What is the role of Christian psychology? What is the role of this Christian? Does psychology have anything to tell us? about how to solve the problems in our life. And and so you had any number of schools of thought. What most people didn't realize is that there were hundreds of different behavioral models or psychological models that were held by by secular psychologists. So which one are you going to go to, and how are you going to evaluate from one model to another which one is biblical? Why not just start with the Bible? Why spend eight years of your life getting a degree in humanistic psychology 
without going to the Bible. And this is exactly what happened. And, and I remember the, many of the conversations that we had in seminary uh, talking about these things and debating these things. And I remember when um, uh, Dallas Seminary was going to, Meyer and Minrith had moved on and they were going to hire somebody else. And I remember at that time Don Campbell was the president and Tommy Ice and I went in, had an appointment with him, and uh, laid out our objections to having a pastoral psychology uh, psychology department. It didn't do any good. So, you know, so much of this is just human viewpoint cloaked in Bible verses, and it's the same kind of garbage that destroyed Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah writes about it, Jeremiah writes about it, Ezekiel writes about it, and it's just a compromise of what God says in his word rather than totally relying on the word of God. That's what God says is that if we totally rely on him, and that's what we're going to look at uh, a little bit more tonight. So last week when we started and we were looking at uh, Second Peter, we looked we move beyond the salutation to look at the next two verses, which should go together. And they're translated in the New King James, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so we looked last time at 2 Peter 1.3 that the way it starts is awkward. It's a difficult translation. I looked at the NET translation, which does a little bit better job than most, uh, seeing that ver- putting an end at verse 2 and then starting fresh by picking up that idea uh, in verse 3. I can pray this. Because that's really where the translation becomes. The, the as there should be translated as, a, as causal, as because or since. I can pray this because his divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. So I have translated it just starting with the word since. And it puts an emphasis on the fact that God has given us what we need in terms of these two things I talked about last time. Zoe refers to physical life. God is going to sustain you to do what he he wants you to do in life. He's going to give you the financial resources, the health. He's going to give you the logistical grace needed to sustain you and give you the physical, financial Uh, resources that you need to be able to accomplish his plan for your life. And he's given you everything. So if you don't have material things that you think you should have, then maybe you don't need them to accomplish what God has in mind for you in this life. And so it's not necessary. And uh, many people spend their lives pursuing certain details of life because they think that's what will give them meaning in this life. And the reality is that God gives you what you need to accomplish his will. Pursuing his will and serving him is that which gives all of us meaning and purpose in life. And that's when we find real life as we go through our 
our physical life. So it, he's given us everything from his omniscience. Notice from his omnipotence. Notice how back in verse 2, he talks about the fact that we have this precious faith, this precious body of doctrine, what we believe, that we have obtained, and it derives from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So there he talks about how it's provided for us by the second person of the Trinity, by Jesus. Then here he talks about the fact that it's his divine power. So the his there would go back to uh, verse, uh, verse 3 where it talks about God, uh, the knowledge of God, number one, the first, first person of the Trinity, God the Father, and of Jesus our Lord. And then he refers to the, the, the Trinity with just this singular pronoun, his divine power. Well, is that Jesus' divine power or the Father's divine power? Well, it's the same omnipotence. So there he's referring to, to God himself as a singular, focusing on the Trinity, not distinguishing one person or the other, that his divine power has given to us. So again, it repeats this idea of what we have been provided. He's given to us all things that pertain to physical life and spiritual life. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us. Now that knowledge is mediated to us where? It's in the scripture. So once again, I mean, there's three or four times here where he basically sources everything in what is revealed to us uh, in the scripture. And it, it derives from God's character just as he derives our precious faith from the righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in verse 2. When we get down to uh, the shift from 3 to 4, he says it's through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Now, the glory and virtue there, we'll come back and talk about it a little more, but glory refers to the essence of God. The word glory, as we've studied many times, is a word that refers to something that is weighty. That's the idea. In fact, in the Old Testament, you have a, the word used, or a form of the word is used in some interesting contexts when um, you would have one of the pagan kings mentioned in the Old Testament that they would... Uh, look at the liver in order to gain guidance. Uh, that was called hepatoscopy. Uh, and it was the use of, they would take the liver out of an animal and the priest would utter some mumbo jumbo over it and they would slice it open and then they would read it to get, a, to get their fortune and find out the answer to their questions. But they went to the liver because, and they called the liver heavy. The word for liver was a cognate of this word, kavod, for glory. And because the liver is the heaviest, the heaviest organ in the body. And so they would see that. We talk about the heart or the mind. Well, in the ancient world, they would talk about uh, the seat of many things was in the liver because it was the heaviest organ. And we think about heavy also in terms of things that are important. If something is a weighty matter, it is a significant matter, uh, back in the 70s, uh, we would say it was heavy. 
Today, they have different terms for, for describing the same thing, but it's it, focusing on something that is incredibly significant or overwhelming or powerful and very important to one's life. So that's the idea of glory. And because God is the one without whom none of us can live, live, then that concept of glory can apply to his whole character because we can't do without anything of his attributes and we live in dependence upon that. So glory became a term that's even used in the Old Testament that way that just sort of summarizes all of God. What makes him important? What makes God weighty? What makes him significant? It's his character. It's who he is. So uh, he called us by his essence, we might say, paraphrase it that way, and virtue. Again, that's giving, looking at the righteous character characteristics of his essence. So we could summarize that, that we're, we're called by his character. Well, that's the same thing that he said about the character, the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the source. It's God's character is a source of what he's given to us. And so it's he says in verse 4, by which, and the which refers back to the two nouns that he used at the end of verse 3, by which, that is, by his glory and virtue, he has given to us, and the word there for given is a perfect tense verb, which means it's completed action. It's already ours. It's been given to us. It was given to us at the instant of salvation. It's not something we need to get afterward. But we have to realize what it is and learn about it and so that we can uh, uh, use it. By which, that is, by his character, his glory and his virtue, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. So he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And where do we find out about this? By his precious promises. And where are those located? Well, in his word. See, everything keeps going back to, to his word that through these, that is the promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now we're going to have to look a little bit at some of these words and we'll come back and try to look at what it means by divine nature. But the key is that word partakers. And that in the, the Greek is koinonos, and it refers to those who share in or participate in or are partners with God. And so this is talking about those who are growing in their fellowship with the Lord as they are walking with the Lord and walking in the light and abiding in Christ. So it's through the promises we learn about the provisions that God has given us for developing our a life where we are partners with God in our spiritual growth. And that enables us to escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, that doesn't mean we get beamed out of the earth, but it means that we live above it, that it doesn't tear us down, it doesn't shackle us, it doesn't enslave us, it doesn't destroy our lives because we have our focus 
on the eternal solution and not on the temporal circumstances. And so all of this just takes us back to where we started last time in talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. And I laid the groundwork by looking at what Scripture is. It's that which is breathed out by God. And in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, uh, Paul tells us that it's profitable for four things, for teaching, so we have to have instruction, we have to learn, get new information so that we can exchange the human viewpoint opinions that dominate our soul for the truth of God's word. It is being renewed. Uh, so we, it's, we have that instruction. It corrects us or it reproves us, first of all. That means it tells us that we're wrong. And we're going to get our toes stepped on a lot when we read Scripture. And then it tells us how we should live. So it tells us where we're living that's wrong. And then it tells us how we should be living. And it teaches us or gives us instruction in righteous living, that is, living that is in conformity with God's character and God's will and God's purpose for our lives for the purpose that we may be complete, that is, mature and equipped for every, every good, good work. So it's not just some good works, it's every good work. So that, that means that whatever problem you have in life, we all have different problems. Some people have emotional problems, some people have physical problems, some people have just real serious problems with, with uh, lust in many different areas. But whatever the problem is, this is making a claim that God gives the solution for every good work so that we can uh, <clears throat> bring that under control. We're never going to be perfect. Everybody's going to sin. Everybody's going to have those moments where they just absolutely blow it, wake up the next day and just look in the mirror, what in the world did I do? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why? And, and we just have to rely on the grace of God for forgiveness. So that's the idea there. It makes us uh, complete, that is, fully qualified and equipped for every good work. So we started with the first point that sufficient means enough. It means it's adequate. It, it gives us everything. It doesn't leave anything out. There, there's no deficiency. There's no absence. It's not insufficient. That's the opposite. That's where I ended uh, some last week in just talking about this, that the opposite to this claim is that the Bible is insufficient. And actually, I've heard, uh, I've heard I, I gave you a couple of examples from, from what... Um, Dave Hunt said in that, that article, but I've heard pastors, I've heard seminary professors say that about different situations that, no, they're facing something, they need professional help. And this created a whole generation of pastors that when seminaries were uh, giving, giving them surveys back in the 70s and 80s, trying to get uh, evaluate how they were doing and how, what students thought afterwards, that the lion's share of students would respond, well, if I had, if I had anything, uh, if anything would change in my seminary education, I wish I'd had more counseling courses. And I can't tell you how many guys I knew who would go back and get a second master's degree in counseling so they could be more effective in the pulpit. And there was a time, the late 80s, 
that it just seemed like I would talk to so many different pastors there, and guys that I had known, gone to seminary with, we'd be in contact, and they would just talk about how they were spending so much time counseling people. And I went out to lunch with a seminary professor who at the time was still good. He fell off the rails later on, unfortunately. But at the time, he was still still pretty solid biblically. And we were talking, and I said... You know, I just don't understand. Here I, <clears throat> I've been pastor of this church for three or four years at that point, and I said nobody ever calls me up for counseling. And I talked to all these other guys, and they're just they're just uh, overwhelmed with all these counseling uh, requests that they have. And he looked at me and he said, "I've heard you teach. You make it so clear what they ought to do and what they ought not do that they don't want to come and have you tell it to them to their face." Nobody wants to hear that, so I I never worried about it again after that. So, <clears throat> theologically, what this means is that the Scripture informs us of all that we need to know to face whatever the problem, whatever the circumstances are in life. And so we face this challenge, and part of the battle today, it's always a battle for the mind, is where do we go to have solutions to the problems in our, our our life. And up until the 19th century, where Christians always went for solutions to the problems in life was to the Bible. They didn't go anywhere else. And you had, as I mentioned last time, numerous testimonies throughout the ages of pastors and theologians uh, who faced all kinds of problems. Depression didn't show up 150 years ago just because Freud was online. People didn't have problems with anger and resentment and bitterness and all of this uh, enslavement to various emotions. That didn't just start 150 years ago. That has been part of the makeup of every, every believer since Adam. It's because it comes from sin. It comes from our sin nature. And if you don't do an adequate job of dealing with the mechanics of the sin nature in the soul, then you can't do an adequate job of of treating what the Scripture says about the solution. Because the ultimate problem is always sin. Now, you've got a lot of people, I think, who've oversimplified that. And uh, I've heard of people who take, uh, they'll do counseling and, they sort of listen to people until they identify where they're sinning, and then they'll say, okay, here's part of the problem in this particular area, you're sinning. That is a superficial answer. It's, the sin nature is a lot more complex and a lot more sophisticated than most people give it credit for. And it's, uh, there, there's a reason why most of us don't reach uh, a level of spiritual maturity in this life until we've been a believer for a long time, and that's because of the complexities of our own sin nature that deceives us. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it, Jeremiah says. And so as a result of the deception of the sin nature, we're going along just thinking we are getting that Christian life by the handle, and we really aren't. We just Our sin nature has just duped us again. And next thing you know, we hit some wall and we crash and burn, 
and God's grace picks us up and gets us going again, and we have to learn uh, about all the complexities of our sin nature, that these problems are not simple, and the solution should not be simplistic, but they are simple. In fact, you can reduce all the problems to two words, trust and obey. They wrote a song about that. It's a great hymn. Trust and obey. I mean, get, you get right down to it, that's it. But people don't want to do that because our sin nature radically opposes the idea of really trusting trusting God. Because sometimes if we start talking about where these problems are in our life, it gets really personal. And we just don't want to expose this autonomy that we have in our life because that's the area that we have a tremendous amount uh, of, uh, of, of comfort. So for most of the church age, there wasn't professional counseling. Where you went was you went to the pastor, and the old term that they had in English for the pastor was he was the cure of the soul. He was the doctor of the soul, not the psychiatrist. It was the pastor. It was the man who knew the Word of God. Let's look at what the Bible, how the Bible talks about knowing the Bible and what it brings to us. I want you to turn to Psalm 1. Easy to find. Psalm, it, Psalms are the middle book in the Bible, and we're going to the very first Psalm. And Psalm 1 is <clears throat> appropriately at the beginning, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Psalm 1 sort of focuses us at the very beginning on key issues throughout the Psalms. The Psalms were written to be sung, but as we read these words, they, uh, they strengthen our soul. So it's a contrast. Psalm 1 is a contrast between a believer who's walking like a believer and an unbeliever who's walking like an unbeliever. Now you can draw an implication from that, that the believer who's walking like an unbeliever is going to have the same problems as an unbeliever. And, but, but we always get caught up in the, in the Psalms when we have this contrast between the righteous and the ungodly because we look at this from the vantage point of the New Testament. And we're, at times you read this, well, is this guy talking about the experientially righteous versus the experientially ungodly. And if you really look across the, the breadth of the Psalms, it's, he, this, the Psalms look at the righteous a, a lot like John in 1 John looks at the believer. He looks at the believer in terms of who he should be as a child of God, what his standard should be as a member of the family of God, and not what his actual experience might be. And so when he talks about the righteous, he's assuming, first of all, that he's positionally righteous. When you trace this out in the Old Testament, you always go back to Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then you come a few chapters later and he separates from his nephew Lot. And where did Lot go? Lot, he, he gives Lot the choice of everything. He looks over all the land, and he says, you pick the best land. And so he looks down in the valley of the what is now the Dead Sea, and he says, I want to go there. It's lush. It's green. If you've been there, that's not the way it is anymore. 
In fact, Genesis says that it was well watered like all the land going down to Egypt. Well, nothing going down to Egypt looks well watered today. So obviously there's been climate change. Who knew? There's been some global warming because now it's all, it's all dead. Well, <clears throat> we know the whole story about Lot and his wife and his daughters going to Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that he lived in the midst of this incredibly sexually perverse, morally uh, reprobate culture in the, the cities of the, of the valley there. And yet, when we go to second chapter in second Peter, we're going to hear Peter refer to Lot as righteous Lot. Now, he wasn't living an experientially righteous life, but he was righteous because he was positionally righteous. He, too, had believed the, gospel, the Old Testament gospel, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he's righteous lot. So that tells us that when we get to the Psalms and we see this contrast between the righteous and the ungodly, it's talking in terms of their salvation status. But it's talking about the righteous as the one who is saved and living like it and the ungodly as the unsaved and living like it, okay? First John does that a lot as well, and it confuses people and gets them legalistic if they don't understand that. So what we see is a different word for blessed here. It's a word that means happy, and not happy in the sense of giddiness, but happiness in the sense of, of that unshakable joy that has been given to us that is part of our possession as a believer in Christ. It's a mental attitude. It's not an emotion. We'll talk about emotion in just a minute. Blessed or happy, stable, content might be the best word. Somebody who's content, he's tranquil, he's satisfied with where he is in life and what God has given him. He's not looking to any of the details of life for his happiness and stability. He is content with the, what the Lord has given him. And, uh, and the basis for that is stated, first of all, negatively. Blessed is the man who does not walk. He walks not. And, he's, and, and it's interesting, there's three verbs here. Walks, stands, sits. Do you notice the progression there? In the first, in standing, I mean, in, in, in walking, excuse me, in standing, excuse me, walking, he walks not, you're moving, you're going somewhere, you're, who knows where you might end up, but then he stops, and he just stands there, he gets comfortable in the path of the sinners, and then he just makes his home there, he sits in the seat of the scornful. So he's, he's walking, that's living his life, and it's <clears throat> in the counsel of the ungodly. So the happy one, the one who's stable and tranquil, is the believer who doesn't walk. So that implies that, yes, indeed, a believer can walk like the ungodly. But the tranquil, happy, stable believer is the one who doesn't walk, he doesn't live his life. Walking is often just a metaphor in Scripture for living your life in the counsel, that is, on the basis of the advice and wisdom given by the unbeliever, what we call human viewpoint, non-biblical thinking. It may sound good. 
it may work, work for some, as Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. That's not talking about eternal death, although it could be, but it can also re- uh, apply to temporal death. We just live a death-like existence. We're not experiencing the life God promised us. And so we see the picture there of the unbeliever who even though he has temporal enthusiasm and excitement and thinks he has great joy at times because he meets his goals. He thinks, if I have a million dollars, I'll be happy. So when he gets a million dollars, he's giddy for a while. And then it's just not enough. You know, if he thinks that having a great party and... um, Uh, getting involved in all kinds of sexual activity is going to make him happy, then he's going to run off with a suitcase full of cocaine and go visit uh, Jeffrey Epstein's island. And uh, for a while, they're going to have a sense. Every time they're there, they're going to feel somehow happy because he's defined happiness on those terms and he's getting it. And he'll feel happy. But inside, there's nothing. It's miserable. And so just develops that, and it was a great phrase, just this um, uh, pursuit of happiness that, that just is crazy and it's never resolved. So in contrast is the believer. And the believer has his delight in the law of the Lord. Now this is an interesting word. In the Hebrew it's chafetz, and it means delight. It, sometimes it's translated desire. It's also translated desire. It's translated will. It's also translated uh, with the word please, pleasing God. God is pleased, and he uses this same, same verb. The problem is that when you and I read a word like delight, we immediately think in terms of some emotional stimulation. We think in terms of emotion. In fact, in the... Um, Theological word book of the Old Testament, the author of the article on Hephetz, says it means to experience emotional delight. Now, there are some problems with that term. We have become, we have fallen in love with emotion for the last 200 years in Western civilization. And prior to that, there wasn't even a word for emotion in the English language. Not only that, there's no word for emotion in the Bible. There's no word in Hebrew for the Bible. There's no word in Greek in the Bible that would be translated as emotion. You have specific terms related to anger, related to bitterness, related to joy, related to, as I said, translated blessed here, but happy. You have those specific words, but you don't have a a general word that describes it or classifies it as emotion. And as I've mentioned a few times recently, the classical way, and by that I mean prior to the late 1700s, the way in which these things were discussed by scholars, by philosophers, by theologians, was to refer to two two aspects of man. You had bodily passions. You ever... Think about what happens when you just really get mad and lose your temper and what that makes you feel like and, uh, you know, the, the chemicals that get generated, the hormones that get out of whack and all the things that happen. And it, it, it's, it seems to be seated in our body as this rage builds. 
In contrast to bodily passion, same things with, with lust. All kinds of lust seems to come from the body, whether you're talking about sexual lust, lust for alcohol, lust, lust for food, and gluttony. It just mo- it's, it's the bodily passions. But then you have another category called the intellectual affections. And the word affection doesn't mean, sometimes we use that word to talk about some sort of, of emotional attraction to somebody. An affection is that which is attracted to something, okay? It is inclined, and, it, and it's, it's a more of a volitional term than it is, uh, it's not emotional at all. For example, the Evangelical uh, Dictionary of Biblical Theology, published by Baker, says of this word, it means to bend toward. That's the idea. It's, it is an attraction to something, as a magnet is attracted to iron, okay? Our iron fillings are attracted to a magnet. So it means to bend toward, to be inclined toward an object or a person. Now, there's a use of this word, and it's translated uh, pleased, but it's kephitz. And the question I I want you to think about when we look at this verse is, would you translate this that God is delighted See, delight indicates something that you're just, oh, really excited and happy about. You're just delighted that somebody came to visit. You're just delighted to be uh, able to go to some sporting event. It, it, just, it, it just raises all your endorphins, and you just feel good all over. Isaiah 53.10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that is the Messiah. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. See, we wouldn't translate that, yet it delighted the Lord to bruise him. That just, when you define it as this emotional term, it just really skews the whole thing. It is something that God approved of because of his righteousness and because of his plan. And and it he chose that volitionally that his plan in order to accomplish the end of human salvation. So when it talks about delight in the law of the Lord, we're attracted to the Bible. We want to learn the Bible. We want to study the Bible. That's why you're here tonight. That's why most of you are here a couple of nights a week and. During the week, you'll listen to a podcast, you listen to other classes, and uh, you're, you delight in the law of the Lord. It's not something that makes you giddy. It's not an emotional high. It is that which gives stability to your life, and you know you have to have it. And then the second line expands on the first one. The first one talks about that, that uh, inclination to study and know the law of the Lord And it takes you to the next step in the second line. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, that word meditate is an interesting word. The word that is used here is the word chagah. And the basic meaning of chagah is the idea of 
to utter, to mutter, to moan, to, to, it's translated to meditate, or to devise or to plot. But in many of the passages, it has that idea of muttering. Now, if you've ever been around a Hasidic Jew as they're praying, as they're reciting Talmud, they're muttering. See, that's how you memorize scriptures. You say it to yourself over and over again, and sometimes you say it out loud. That's the idea here, is you're speaking it. In fact, other Hebrew words that are translated mutter, or excuse me, are translated meditate, you have the word amar, which is the basic word that in most cases is just translated he said or he spoke, something of that order. So it has to do with verbally articulating something. And yet in a number of passages, it's translated to meditate. Because meditation in the Bible, A, it's not like Eastern mysticism and their meditation, which is to empty your mind of everything so evil can pour in, creating a vacuum in your soul which sucks in evil. But meditation in the Bible is to, is to memorize and to recite and to rehearse the promises and the scripture of God and saying it over and over and over again to yourself because that keeps you focused on the word. So that's the idea of meditation, and it's something that goes on all the time. It goes on day and night. That doesn't mean that you don't ever do your job or, or talk about other things or watch a baseball game or anything of that nature, but it's, it's that it's something that continually goes on in your life. It dominates your thinking. So, so the, the psalm begins by saying that this is what makes somebody stable, content with life because he is attracted to the word and he spends his time continuously reciting it. Coming to Bible class two, three, four, five, six times a week doesn't cut it. It's what you're doing the rest of the time with what you've learned that makes the difference. It's reciting that scripture, memorizing that scripture, reciting it over and over again. And then verse 3 gives you the result. It says, he shall be like a tree. This is a, a, a picturesque image. If you've ever been in any kind of desert environment, and then all of a sudden you come to a spring somewhere, and you see, especially in Texas, you'll see fig trees, you'll see sycamore trees, you'll see uh, a few other trees that really depend upon water, and all of a sudden you'll see this green area, and you go there, and many of the time when I was out hiking in central Texas or on canoe trips, I remember going down the the Colorado a couple of times, and you could watch the bank, and all of a sudden all you'd see, especially in late July, you'd see this area of greenery that just stood out. And we'd pull the canoes over to the side. This was back in the 60s and 70s. We'd pull, it's all ranch land now. Now it's developing into homes and ranchettes. But you'd pull over, and you'd hike up, uh, maybe hike up around a cliff or something like that, and you'd find the best water, uh, just seeping out of the ground, and you found a, a great freshwater spring. And that's what this is describing. He's going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, he shall prosper. Whatever he does, he shall prosper. This is somebody that has life squared away. They are, but they're squared away because the foundation is 
their meditation on the Word of God and their application, and it produces it, it produces a flourishing life. It doesn't mean there aren't problems, but the problems are handled by the Word of God. Oh, but the ungodly, it's not so. The word translated ungodly is a word that is translated in places the guilty or the wicked, the unrighteous. They are unrighteous because they've never trusted in Christ. There's no imputation of righteous. This is why they still bear their guilt. The ungodly are not so, but their lives are just the opposite. They are unstable. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. There's no tranquility there. There's no stability in their life. They go from one day to the next and one crisis to the next, and everything is falling apart all the time. Then we reach a conclusion in verse 5, Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. This is talking about the future. They will not stand in the judgment because they're guilty. They're not righteous. Their guilt has not been wiped away. They, sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. They will not have eternity in heaven. For, why? For the Lord knows, referring to the omniscience of the Lord, knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. What makes the difference between the flourishing, productive tree and the tree that is withered and the chaff just blows everywhere and their life is a wreck? It's the Word of God. It's not psychology. It's not going to some self-help technique. It's not going watching these seminars that you have with Tony Robbins on PBS. You know, these are not the solution. Do they have elements of truth there? Sure they do. Satan's systems always have a lot of truth. It's the way it's systematized and the foundation that's wrong and that is self-destructive. But this isn't the only place we have this. We also have this described in Jeremiah chapter 17. This is just a tremendous passage. Jeremiah chapter 17. And in Jeremiah 17, God is, through Jeremiah, uh, telling Judah that because of their sin, they are going to be judged and they are going to be punished. And in starting in verse 5, he gives the underlying principle as to why this judgment is coming, because they have trusted in limited human resources. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. See, we all trust in man at some point or another. It's that last phrase, but does it turn us away from the Lord? Now, there's three key words in this passage. The first is curse. This is, means to be uh, bound with a curse, to come under judgment. When Genesis 12:3 talks about, um, I will curse those who treat you lightly, that first word for curse is this word, arar. Then we have the second word is trust. It's batak, and it means to trust in something, to be confident of something, to be exceptionally confident in it. We're basing our life on it, uh, to feel safe, to rely on it. It's something that's firm and reliable. And so the cursed is the man who relies and depends on man, on human viewpoint, on human systems of knowledge and human systems of problem-solving. 
and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away, and that's a very picturesque word in the Hebrew. It's the word sur. It means to turn aside, to defect, to abandon, to depart or withdraw from God. This is the a picture of what Judah has done. They apostatized. They turned to idolatry. They were seeking solutions somewhere other than God. That's what idolatry is. I'm going to make my life work without just letting my life be saturated with the Word of God. Having a lot of Bible doctrine, no books, is not saturating your soul with the Word of God. Illustration. It's saturating your bookshelves with the Word of God. Jeremiah 17, 6, He is like a shrub in the desert. He dries up. See, it's the same imagery we had, like chaff in the wind. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness. He's going to have a hole in his soul because it's empty. He's on a frantic search for happiness, and he can't find meaning anywhere. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. There's nothing of value there. And then we see the contrast, the one who is blessed. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is the Lord. He's not hoping in Freud and Maslow and all of the other pop psychologists all the way up to Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Phil. Do they have a lot of common sense? Sure. But the foundation is screwy. There's no, no found, real foundation there. Satan systems are all really good. It's not the 99% truth that will get you. It's that 1% of arsenic that's going to kill you. And even if, if 99% uh, can, can somehow coincide with Scripture, it's the other 1% that destroys it, and it's just human viewpoint and has no eternal value. You may seem like you solve a problem, but you didn't do it God's way. Blessed is the man who trusts, same word, batach, whose hope, and there it's the word mivtach. It's, if you can see it, the B-T-A-H represents the same consonants as you have in batach. So uh, hope and confidence and trust are very closely related ideas, and so sometimes this word, like in the New King James, it's translated hope. Other translations tran- say, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. And then you have an illustration very similar to the one in Psalm 1. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. In other words, when adversity comes, when problems arise, there's no anxiety, there's no fear, there's no... Uh, sense that everything's going to fall apart. There's no panic. There's stability. Why? Those roots of that tree are spread out so that when the hot winds come, when those Chiraco winds come across the Judean desert, that tree is not going to fall down. It is stable. For its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And then we have a warning that comes at the end. The heart is deceitful above all things. There's a great warning there. It's real easy to think you're 
the man who's trusting in the Lord when you're trusting in human viewpoint because you've been deceived just like like Eve was deceived in, in the garden. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or desperately wicked. Who can understand it? We can't comprehend all that's going on in our own, uh, our own sin natures. God promises us life, the life that we have in the tree that's depicted in both Psalm 1 and, and in Jeremiah 17, or is a tree that has life. And it has life because of trust in the Lord and trust in his word, not trust in the Bible plus something else, not trust in the Lord plus something else. And we have these same kinds of promises in the New Testament. Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus said, and it worked really well for 1,800 or 1,900 years, Jesus didn't say, I have come to give you abundant life until Freud comes along and we get pharmaceuticals. I've, given, I've come to give you life and give you abundant life now, whatever it is that you face. And he's, God was fully aware of depression and discouragement, all these other things, long before modern man made such a fetish out of all of these, all of these different problems. Now, the third point, and I'll cover it pretty quickly. It's a setup for the fourth point. The personal challenge for each of us is that we face problems in life. I don't want anybody to raise your hand. I don't want to hear any amens. We don't get what we want. That's our basic problem. Our sin nature doesn't get what it wants, what it defines as happiness. And so it's always grabbing after something else. Life doesn't turn out the way we think it should. Life doesn't turn out the way we want. We don't look the way we want. We don't feel the way we want. We don't have spouses that behave the way we want all the time. We don't have friends and employers that do things the way we think they should, and they don't respond to what we do the way we think they should. Our marriage isn't what we want. Our children certainly aren't behaving the way we want. It's a problem of unrealistic expectations. We've defined that everybody needs to respond the way I want them to and live the way I want them to as the source of our contentment, stability, and happiness. It's unrealistic expectations because we have forgotten that our heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, that I'm a dirty, rotten, corrupt sinner, and so are you. And until the day I die, I've got a problem with my sin nature, and so do you. Our unrealistic expectations are shaped by the priorities and the lust patterns of our own sin nature. And we will struggle with them until the day we go home to be with the Lord. The result of that is that if we live on that basis, then we will always be disappointed, we'll be discouraged, we'll be distressed, and and depressed because life just isn't what it could be and we get into power lust today that's real popular uh, that person's a control freak they've got power lust they're trying to control everything in their life so that they can have stability and happiness and we're never going to control 
everything or even most things are most people they're just completely out of our out of our control scripture says there's no testing there's no temptation taken you but such as is common to man we all face the same issues the same problems the same discouragements all the time but god is faithful who will not who will make a way for us to escape we're not going to get beamed out but we're going to survive it with joy so that we can endure it. That's a, such a great promise. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Next time we'll start with the root problem. We have to understand the dynamics of our own sin nature. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at this and to realize in our lives you have given us a sufficient revelation. You've get, your grace is sufficient. The cross is sufficient. We don't have a problem that you didn't know about billions and billions of years ago and you provided every solution necessary for us to live above <clears throat> those circumstances. And Father, too often we look at the details of life as a source of happiness, and all they are is a source of struggle, a source of complications, and often the source of misery, because the only source of happiness is in that, that close relationship with you, that rapport with you that partnership with you. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've learned tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.